Good morning. My name is David. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool through fourth grade, you're invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you're able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went, because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed the hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Katie, and I'm on staff here at Haverhill Commons, and I'm so glad to be here with you all this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment to pause in silence and allow the Spirit to help us quiet any distractions we may be holding on to. I'll close us in a moment in prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word and for allowing us to know and learn more about who you are. I pray that we would continue to grow in our love of you throughout this day and all the days to come. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, funny story about this sermon. Here's some good behind-the-scenes info if you've ever wondered how we plan our sermon series, because I'm sure that those are the questions that keep you up at night. But typically, when we get ready to start a new series, 
We take time to map out who's preaching each week, so we typically have the whole series planned out until the end when we first start. So uh, that's what it looks like when we schedule our sermons. So Matt built out our calendar, I picked my weeks, filled out our Google spreadsheet, and spent the last few weeks thinking I knew exactly what passage I was preaching on today. John chapter 5. Fast forward to last week, Matt texted me to check in about a couple different things, including how I was feeling about sermon prep, at which point he mentioned my passage, John chapter 6. Well, now I was confused. I responded saying I thought I was doing chapter 5, only to learn that Matt was currently finishing up his sermon on chapter 5 for last Sunday. So I quickly looked up chapter 6 and see that it's the feeding of the 5,000, and in full transparency, I was disappointed. Having grown up in the church, I think I heard no less than four sermons every year, plus had multiple Sunday school lessons with flannel graphs on the feeding of the 5,000. So you know when you hear a new song that immediately grabs you and you love it until it becomes a radio hit and you start hearing it everywhere you go and eventually you've heard it so many times that you start turning the volume down when it comes on rather than up. Well, that's kind of what this passage felt like for me. So I tried to finagle a way to switch up our schedule or swap in a different passage, and I started reading commentaries on the end of John chapter 4, thinking maybe I would do that section instead, until I thought, maybe I should just read a little bit about chapter 6 and see what I think. And the more I read, the more I wanted to keep reading. And I remembered why I'm so glad that curiosity is one of our values as a church. I realized I had stopped being curious about this passage, and that's a big part of why it felt so stale. But as I read and I asked questions and considered new details I'd never picked up on before, or maybe I'd heard but never really listened to, I started to feel like I wanted to turn the volume up again. And hopefully this morning, you'll feel the same way too. So let's jump in. To start us off, I want to mention a couple of reminders about the book of John, since our sermon on John 1 was a couple of months ago. The book of John is not included in the group of books known as the Synoptic Gospels. That would be all of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a lot of overlap in the events of Jesus' life told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the events are all told fairly chronologically. John, though, while still accurate, doesn't necessarily follow the same structure as the other three. He tells different stories and includes unique details within those stories to communicate why we can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So, what does this have to do with our passage? Well, fun fact, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle, aside from the resurrection, that is written about in all four Gospels which means this miracle is one that reveals something particularly important about who Jesus is. So right now, our series is called Signs and Wonders in the Gospel of John, and these signs aren't like your typical everyday road signs. Like Matt mentioned last week, these signs are ones that point to something specific about Jesus and show us where we should direct our attention. Each week, we're looking at a different sign or wonder to try and understand what it's trying to tell us about Jesus. So something interesting to note about these signs. 
Matt wanted to mention this last week and didn't have time, so I promised him that we'd be sure to mention it another week, so here you go. All of the signs and wonders in John's gospel happen against the backdrop of Jewish religious holidays or festivals. And those festivals and holidays are packed with their own meaning that add even more layers to the significance of each sign. Well, for Jewish readers at the time, they would have picked up on most, if not all, of those layers at their first reading. For us, though, I would imagine that none of us are very immersed in Jewish festivals or religious holidays, so we're going to miss all of the signs and layers if we don't take the time to dig in. Part of reading scripture well and responsibly is not doing what I did for so long with this passage but it's having curiosity about these contextual details and using them to help us understand what the gospel writer is saying about Jesus. It's like paying attention to where the sign is placed in the world. A danger sign is going to indicate something very different, a different kind of danger, depending on where you are. Danger in the ocean is very different from danger in someone's backyard, which is very different from danger in a war zone. For instance, last week's passage of Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethesda happened on the Sabbath, a day of such great importance to the Jewish people that observing the Sabbath was integral to Jewish culture and identity. It was a full day devoted solely to resting and worshiping God, a day where work was prohibited apart from the work that God does to sustain the world which is why Jesus could say that his performing a healing on the Sabbath was doing the work of the Father rather than breaking a Jewish law. And this week's passage takes place during the Passover, leading up to the Passover. And the Passover is one of three great annual Jewish festivals, a festival of national pride and celebration, when the Jewish people would remember God rescuing them from out of Egyptian enslavement. Now, I think John mentions the Passover here for two reasons. One is for logistical context. At this time, it was expected that all men would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. So the fact that it was around the time of Passover might explain why so many people from all over the Roman Empire would have been traveling to Jerusalem. And as they traveled, they caught wind of the news that there was someone healing people and performing miracles and the crowd around Jesus continued to grow. I think he also mentions the Passover because he knew exactly what anyone reading these words at that time would think of when they thought of the Passover. He knew that it would conjure up images of Moses and the Exodus and of a sacrificial lamb. Images of the people being fed with manna in the desert every day for 40 years and of the freedom and the fulfillment of God's promises that the Jewish people had been longing for for so long. And just as Moses went up to the mountaintop at Sinai and was given the Ten Commandments, we find Jesus on the side of a mountain, sitting down with his disciples to rest. The signs are all pointing down a path to show us how Jesus is another Moses, a better Moses. And at this point, he notices a crowd, a crowd that John estimates is about 5,000 men. Now, it's possible here that John is using man in the general collective human sense, but it's more likely that he really means that just the men in the crowd equaled about 5,000. 
in which case it's possible that including women and children, the crowd actually was closer to about 20,000. Now, if you're anything like me, you're also really bad at fathoming numbers on such a large scale, so I tried my best to find some equivalents to help you picture just how many people were present. Now, if it really was just 5,000, here is a photo of about 5,000 people at a concert in Barcelona, Spain in 2021. It was one of the first events of this scale to happen in Europe following the outbreak of COVID, so they limited capacity to just the 5,000 person standing room on the floor, and it's still a lot of people. But if you really did mean that the men alone numbered 5,000 and there were closer to 20,000, here's what roughly 20,000 people at TD Garden for a Celtics game looks like. That's not just a crowd, that is a multitude of people. So when Jesus turns and asks Philip, where should we buy bread for people to eat? I can only imagine the confused look on Philip's face and the wild thoughts flying through his head as he tries to figure out how to respond to Jesus. I imagine he was racking his brain, trying to do all the calculations of how much bread they would need and what markets were close by to try to come up with the right answer, all the while suspicious that surely this has got to be a trick question. I mean, how could it not be? You want us to buy bread for this, this many people, Jesus? There's no way. So it makes sense that the response Philip blurts out is filled with discouragement. He says, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Now, the Greek here in Philip's response translates a little more accurately to 200 denarii would not be enough. A denarius at the time was equivalent to a typical laborer's or fisherman's full day's wage. So it would take working almost eight months to save up 200 denarii. Now, the disciples were not necessarily wealthy people. Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been most likely to have some resources saved up. But the other disciples were not known for their considerable wealth. They also were on the side of a mountain. Where are they supposed to buy bread on a mountain with no access to a village or a market, much less one with enough bread already baked to fill up the stomachs of potentially 20,000 people? So the situation that Jesus has put Philip in to answer how they could provide for such a large crowd with woefully inadequate resources is an impossible one. And while we're not often put in situations where we need to feed 20,000 people on a mountainside, at least I know I've never been put in that situation, but maybe you have. While we're not often put in that situation, I do think we experience moments in our lives where things feel impossible. Maybe there was a moment in your life where you felt inadequate, either because of the resources available to you or because you felt personally underqualified to manage a particular situation. Or when you were so overwhelmed by a challenge or a loss that you thought it might consume you. In moments like these, it's not uncommon for someone to say, remember, God will never give you more than you can handle. I know I've had a lot of people offer that as a comfort to me in the midst of hard seasons, and I'm sure that I've even said it to others at some point in my life. Because on the surface, it does sound comforting. When everything already feels like too much, 
Who wants to believe that things could get worse? But I think our passage shows that God will never give you more than you can handle is a completely untrue statement. And at its core, it's not very comforting at all. In part because it comes from a new age mindset and makes it seem like all you need to make it through life is already inside of you. It just needs to be unlocked and accessed. You don't need anyone else. You can fix you. And God is just sitting around like some sort of behind-the-scenes mastermind, giving us just the right amount of hard things before we reach our breaking point. It's a good example of how we often can take a mindset that's floating around in our culture and insert it into our Christian worldview and somehow attribute it to God. But the gospel tells us that we need something outside of ourselves. We need help to do what we can't do on our own or what we can't handle on our own. Because I do think we face things that are more than we can handle. I know I have. I've gone through seasons where I felt like there was no way I could keep juggling all of the balls I had in the air, and I was just waiting for the moment when they would all come crashing down. And seasons of darkness, when grief felt all-consuming, where the smallest task felt like a crushing weight, the Apostle Paul even says in 2 Corinthians, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. And Jesus himself says to his disciples in the garden at Gethsemane, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Now that sounds to me like they both were facing more than they could handle. And here in our passage, we see Jesus presenting Philip with more than he can handle. He asked Philip to provide an answer for a problem that he wouldn't be able to solve on his own even in eight months, much less one afternoon. Now verse 6 tells us that Jesus was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. But I don't think that this is the same kind of testing that we think of when we picture the mastermind behind all the computer screens. I think it's Jesus presenting Philip with more than he can handle and asking him, here's a task that's too much for you to manage alone. So what are you going to do? It wasn't a test to assess what Philip already knew, like the kind that you would take in school to see if you knew the right answer, but a test to produce something in him a test meant to both reveal his character and to deepen his character, to increase his trust and deepen his faith. Now, Christians in the early church saw these kinds of tests as beneficial to their faith because they knew that they produced perseverance and conviction of belief. Now, if we keep reading verses 9 and 10 in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us, as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And I think this is how Jesus wants Philip and the rest of the disciples, and each of us, to respond in our own impossible moments. Because Philip couldn't handle the task on his own. But Jesus could step in and provide nourishment for a multitude in the midst of Philip's feelings of uncertainty and inadequacy. 
Jesus could feed the crowd and draw out a new degree of faith in Philip. Now at this point, another disciple, Andrew, speaks up and says, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? And I love this moment because it feels so earnest. Now it's clear that Andrew thinks there's no way this is going to help, but he's just trying to offer something, anything, to try and alleviate the problem. It's like when you see someone moving something really heavy, a piece of furniture or a large box, and you offer to help, only to realize the only spot left for you to hold on to doesn't actually help take any of the weight, or that they're just a step or two away from their final destination, so your help didn't actually help. But in a surprising turn of events, the small offering from Andrew and a young boy he found in the crowd do end up making a difference because they offer them up to Jesus. In verse 10, Jesus says, tell everyone to sit down. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Now jumping back just a little bit, there's an interesting detail that's different in these verses than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version of the story. In each of the synoptic gospels, Jesus blesses the bread and fish and then gives it out to the disciples to distribute to the crowd. And while this gives a great image of Jesus using those who follow and believe in him to participate with him in carrying out his work, John's version of the story only mentions Jesus himself feeding the crowd. And that's not to say that the disciples didn't help or that Jesus himself personally handed bread and fish out to anywhere between 5,000 and 20,000 people individually. But it is, however, John's way of highlighting that Jesus alone is the source of abundant life. Jesus easily could have produced exactly the right amount of bread and fish to satisfy each person in attendance. But instead, he provides an abundance of bread, so much bread that they filled 12 baskets. Now, during this time period, there were expectations among the Jewish people that the Messiah would be revealed through a new miracle of manna, providing nourishment to an Israel reunited as one group of the 12 tribes. A Jewish text written around the same time as the gospel said, and it shall come to pass when all is accomplished that was to come to pass in those parts, that the Messiah shall then begin to be revealed. And it shall come to pass at that selfsame time that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years. It's likely that some in the crowd or later readers of the Gospel of John would have seen this sign and understood that the abundant bread was an announcement of the arrival of the Messiah. It was God revealing Jesus to be the greater Moses, providing the bread of life to all people who choose to follow him, a sign that no one can provide nourishment that fills and sustains like the nourishment provided by Jesus. This is why, when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. 
and they were right. Because Jesus alone can meet us in our shortcomings and our inadequacies and our feelings of despair and provide a firm foundation for us to rely on. It was impossible for Philip to feed the 5,000 on his own. And I'm sure we've all faced moments that felt impossible just in the last three years, if not throughout the rest of your life. Maybe you're even experiencing one of those moments now. And there are all kinds of things that the world will attempt to offer you as a solution to your problem. All you need is to make more money, get more friends, ask for that promotion, manage your time better, read the newest self-help book, or implement those strategies. But in the end, like Philip, we can't do it on our own. And all of those solutions that the world offers just end up with us putting even more pressure on ourselves to figure it out. But rather than assuming that we can meet the challenge on our own or that we have what it takes to pass that test, our passage today invites us to turn to Jesus because he can carry our impossible situations. And these impossible situations might be opportunities for God to draw us into a more trusting place, a place where we can see and taste and experience the abundance of God's love for us. We don't have to manufacture a solution through our own sheer willpower. Instead, we're invited to accept the impossible situation and allow Jesus into it with us to help. And while we can't come up with the solutions on our own, what we do have can still make a difference when submitted to Jesus and multiplied. Now, while the young boy on the mountainside didn't have much, Jesus was able to take what little he did have and made so much more. So the help we offer, the time, the talent, or the treasure that we have, when given to Jesus, can produce amazing results. What might seem insignificant to us can be used by God to do more than we could ever do by ourselves. Now, as we continue through the rest of our series, John is inviting each of us into our own test. Are we going to keep trying to do life and whatever challenges we face on our own? Or are we going to see the signs and wonders and believe that Jesus is the Son of God? that he can part our Red Seas and give us manna for 40 years in the wilderness? Are we going to put our faith in him and trust him to be our sustenance, our bread of abundant life? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you in the midst of our inadequacies and uncertainties, and we offer them up to you. Thank you that you do not leave us to suffer and despair alone, but you step into our impossible situations and you bear our burdens with us, sustaining us and multiplying the little that we have into so much more. Help us to remember that we don't have to feed the crowd on our own, but you are there, willing and ready to nourish our souls. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>